you could feel that the land trusted me. Yeah. I haven't been violating the land. Right. You know, like every choice I've made has been to prioritize the life force of this place and the, the, all those who were here before me, the plants, the trees, the rocks, the animals, they all came before me. You know, I'm moving into their neighborhood. Right. And so I want to do that in the most respectful way possible as a protector and steward of this place instead of an exploiter of this place who's just trying to achieve my goals. Culture Keepers, this is Deborah Ashe with You Are a Culture Keeper podcast. This week, we're honoring Sven Jorgensen in conversation. And what's remarkable about him is that he's never had any mind-altering substances. No alcohol, no drugs, not even coffee. And he's not Mormon. He's a light worker and has known from a young age that he has a purpose on this earth. And that involves keeping his energy as clear as possible. He's a juggler, tight wire walker, and circus artist of very high level who politely declined an offer from Cirque du Soleil because he was already feeling fulfilled in the abundance of his career. And he loves being self-employed, I do too, and fulfilling his own artistic vision. He recently bought a magical piece of land in Tetonia, Idaho, near the Grand Tetons and not far from Yellowstone National Park on an artist's budget. I've been to this property and it's so beautiful and the surrounding parks are just extraordinary. People from all over the world come and visit. His story is so compelling that I wanted other artists to hear how they can purchase their dream land too on a shoestring. (laughs) Hi, Deborah. Hi, Sven. So this is Sven Jorgensen. How are you today? And this is my dear friend, Deborah, and we've talked for years about needing to record some of our conversations because mm-hmm. we always have wonderful, fascinating, interesting conversations about issues that matter to us very deeply. Yeah. And so, so I'm so excited that we're finally getting to do this and that you've made this happen. Me too. Congratulations on getting this launched. Thank you. Yeah. Um, you've been one of my main inspirations for getting this going. I know we've talked about this for years, so lots of great conversations over the years and we kind of... Um, you and a handful of other folks in my life, we've kind of realized that some of the conversations that we've had are really forward thinking and could help other people. And so I just really wanted to talk with you today about Dancing Light, about your um, property that you're stewarding in Idaho, and also just kind of share with people this decolonized idea of uh, stewardship of the land. And I know that there's a lot of people right now around the world who have been looking at owning land, not just a home, but owning land in the light of this quarantine and wanting to be more self-sufficient and everything. So I know you have a lot to say about that. Yeah. So many different things that tie in together here. And I think that that idea of land ownership as a really a pathway to freedom, you know, um, doing a relationship to the land in the right way, allows you to actually truly be a free human being in a society that claims to be about freedom, 
but in actual fact is ruled by a socioeconomic system that constantly attempts to imprison us in consumer culture and in this mm -hmm. endless loop of you got to work to live, you got to live to work, you got to work to live, you got to live, you know, and it's all about buying stuff that we don't need mm -hmm. for uh, a few people to make a ton of money. Yeah. You know, while most of us are working in ways that make us miserable, make us sick um, and don't bring quality to our lives. So I think it's not only the pandemic that has really driven this urge for people to get out of the trap that was the big cities uh, during the pandemic and, and dealing with lockdowns, but it's also a socioeconomic system that's built around exploiting people for profit um, and being able to have a little more self-governance by being independent. Um, mm -hmm. I wouldn't necessarily say for me, I've always felt pretty free. I've lived, as you know, a very uh, alternative life being an artist, you know, so I've never really bought into the system to begin with. So for me, this place, this beautiful little piece of land um, is less about that freedom aspect, but more about the freedom to create, you know, to have a space to do my work in the world, mm -hmm. um, to have a place to put energetic roots into the ground so that I am supported in a way that I can help the rest of the world in the best way possible. Um, and, you know, just me being who I am, someone who came here to help address the environmental crisis on this planet, to address all the things that are tied into that, which is the Black Lives Matter movement, which is the, you know, genocide of the Native American peoples. I mean, it's all part of the same whole. Um, you know, it's just part and parcel that for me, it's, just critical to, to do this land development uh, in the way that has the absolute minimal impact on the surroundings, that it's mm -hmm. really about being in harmony with the landscape instead of trying to domineer the landscape, instead of you know conquering this land and making it into what I want. It's about what wants to naturally and organically arise here. Mm -hmm. And that's really the story of Dancing Light, which is this building that I'm sitting in and working on as we speak. Mm -hmm. um, as its own entity. I mean, the fascinating thing when you engage a creative process and allow things to take on their own life form, magic happens, you mm -hmm. know? I could just bang together a house and it'll just be a house and people will see it as an inanimate object that provides shelter for me. But you can also create things that have a living spirit and essence and that take on their own role in the process and that's where you end up with what I'm having here, which is, I mean, this place is a disaster zone of construction right now. I mean, there's sawdust and tools everywhere. There's no insulation in the walls and it is still an amazing space to be in. Mm -hmm. Even in its unfinished form, it is an incredible space. Everyone walks in and has this great feeling mm -hmm. because I have worked in harmony with the land and because I've allowed the life force of the building itself to help guide the process of its own creation. Um, and so that's, amazing mm -hmm. you know and that very much ties into the decolonization of the way we relate to the world around us we've got to stop trying to conquer the world and start existing harmoniously with the world around us yeah and with the, i want to hear more about that and i just want to fill in the gaps for people um sure you decided a few years ago that you were ready to buy land and it was a financial hardship for you and you really had to pull it together and um you made it happen. It was kind of a miracle how it all came together. Are you willing to share that story? Yeah, I think that's one of the best things that people might be able to take from my experience 
is it's, it's just all about the process, right? And if you're really in alignment with yourself and you allow the process to carry you instead of trying to force the process, mm-hmm. it has a miraculous feel. So in my case, I had lived in Colorado for just about 20 years. Colorado was never my home. It was my office. It was the place that I worked. And, and I loved it. what were you doing it. there? I'm a professional circus artist. And so <gasps> doing lots of events, juggling, throwing fire around, walking tight wire for corporate events, major charity fundraisers, private parties, et cetera. And um, street. And Pearl Street Mall in Boulder, which is also um, a form of performing street theater that'll absolutely force you to learn to work harmoniously with your process because the mm. audience hasn't bought tickets. They have no reason to watch your show. You've got to work with them. Yeah. You can't just bring them into the theater and impose your show upon them. Mm-hmm. Every show is a co-creation. And so I'm pretty well versed in that idea of co-creating in a process, which I think is helpful here mm-hmm. um, because that's what has happened. I and mean, I've been able to roll with that co-creative process instead of fighting it and trying to force things to happen the way I want. Mm-hmm. So at the time that I realized it was finally time for me to move to the place that is really home for me, home to my heart and soul, I had just spent five years basically blowing off income in order to work on a side project. So I came into this with very like the lowest income I've ever had for years. Mm-hmm. So I could not very easily prove to the bank that I had a lot of income to put down money on a big loan or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, I initially found a piece of land. The best thing I had found to date was a 10 acre parcel, hundred thousand dollars. I had none of my ducks in a row. I'd never bought land before. I had no idea how the process worked. I went mm-hmm. to the bank and basically did not end up with that piece of land. Yeah. And what I did end up though with was organization by attempting to buy that land. I learned all the things I needed to learn to be able to get my ducks in a row. Mm-hmm. Okay. So then having my ducks in a row, which in my case meant I went into it thinking, well, if I'm going to buy land, they, they're not going to want me to have much debt. So I better pay off my credit cards. Mm-hmm. In actual fact, they preferred that I have credit card debt and more money in savings. Interesting. And that was something I didn't know. And so the next That's year, what tip. I did was basically spent more money on my credit card and didn't pay my credit card off mm-hmm. so that I could have more of my limited financial resources in a savings account you know, Mm -hmm. from which I would then be able to pay the land loan that they would give me. Mm -hmm. So it was stuff like that. There was a huge, just learning, how does the system work? Mm -hmm. And so having kind of lined some of that stuff up, the other thing I did that was very, very helpful for me was I went to my bank, which fortunately I'd been with for many years, and I got a business line of credit and a personal line of credit. Mm-hmm. Cause I knew I was going to be able to need to draw on as much debt as I could, as much financial leverage as I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by opening those two lines of credit, that gave me more than just my credit cards and more than I would be able to get when I applied for a land loan. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was able to get that cause I have been a business person for a long time. And again, five years of making almost no money, but still they were willing to give me a little bit of a business line of credit, a little personal line of credit. And mm-hmm. that was very helpful. So when I finally found the property that really felt like home to me, mm-hmm. um, at that point, it was priced at $54,000, mm-hmm. having sat on the market for a few years in a very bad market and dropped in price. I knew immediately it was the place that I wanted to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and sorry, actually, it was on the market for 63000 I was mm-hmm. ready to pay the original price of 80000 not that I could afford it. I was 
would pay anything to get to be so this place. excited yeah and it was clearly the place i needed to be I mean, the yeah. money is inconsequential compared to being aligned with truth I you just, know being in my right place yeah i just remember sorry to pause you for oh, a moment no, no. but i just remember how disheartened you were during the entire house hunting process and how that decision for you was so big do you remember how upsetting it was for you? Oh, like how I'm, discouraged you felt and so like discouraging. so many roadblocks and obstacles and right. the getting the financial house together was so frustrating as an artist for you. And like, I just know so many of us can relate to that. Like homeownership is the dream of so many people that I know. Right. And like when you found your home, I remember over the phone, I could feel right your excitement and like yeah, yeah. this golden light around you it was almost like a halo that I could yeah. see when you were talking about it. I was like oh my god this is it yep. this is the house right absolutely so, and when we say house we mean the land the, the land of course the land here is the house and I'm just yeah. building some extra rooms inside of this incredible house which is the land um yeah it can be incredibly discouraging if you have not followed the traditional path in life yeah. trying to then work within a system that's not designed for us as independent self-employed people or artists can be mm -hmm. brutal. Because on the one hand, you know, being self-employed, if you're a big business, you are incentivized to basically pay no taxes. Apple pays zero taxes. AT&T pays zero taxes. Giant oil companies that make millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars a year pay zero taxes. Mm -hmm. And so on the one hand, our role modeling is, oh, if I'm a smart business person, I will claim all of my costs of business to reduce my tax burden. But then when you go to the bank, the bank says, well, you don't make enough money to qualify for a loan. Mm -hmm. And you say, well, I'm doing the most sensible thing I can, which is to minimize my tax burden so I can invest my money towards moving forward in life and in business. Mm -hmm. And they say, well, no, it just doesn't, you know, your taxes just don't represent that. So it's like if you're a multi-billion dollar international corporation, the banks will give you as much money as you want, despite the fact that you don't pay taxes. Mm -hmm. But if you're a sole proprietor, a self-employed individual, an artist, you can't get money even if you make money and mm -hmm. show that you do pay taxes. So the system is very much set up not to help those of us who are functioning independently. And it's where mm -hmm. I feel kind of lucky that I, I somehow managed to squeak through the system. You know, getting that that personal line of credit, getting the business line of credit, taking out a couple of credit cards. And when you do that, mm -hmm. it's you apply for multiple credit cards at once so mm -hmm. that they don't come back and you say, well, you already have credit cards. You want all those applications to happen at the same time. So they all give you the most amount of credit, mm -hmm. which then you will use, in my case, for building materials and so forth. Mm -hmm. But of course, having taken out those credit cards, now your credit score is lower. And so it's this very delicate dance that I've been on. Mm -hmm. with basically trying to max out every bit of credit I possibly can without destroying my credit rating so much mm -hmm. that I won't be able to get a mortgage mm -hmm. when the house is finally ready and done. And I want to go to the bank and ask for a mortgage on it, yeah. a refinance basically, in order to consolidate that higher interest rate credit card and line of credit. Uh, money. So it's challenging and it is not for the faint of heart. It can right. be very stressful financially, but there's yeah. also a piece of me that, you know, I marvel at the fact that the only real money I started with here, right? So $63,000 property down from 80,000. I, you know, thankfully I had a great realtor who's like, no, you're not going to pay the full price. We're going to make an offer and see what they come back with. Mm -hmm. And we'll find a meeting point somewhere below 63. Mm -hmm. That ended up being 54,000. I think wow. we initially offered 48. 
they uh-huh. counter offered 54 and we accepted that. So that's a great price for a couple mm-hmm. acres. And for mm-hmm. me with no money, um, the only actual money I had in savings at that point was $17,000 or so, or maybe it was 20, mm-hmm. but my down payment was 17,000. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And then they, the, they, I was like, put it all on the down payment. They're like, no, 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 no. We want you to have a few thousand dollars in the bank to make your ongoing payments. Okay, right. fine. Right. So I put it in 17,000. Then I basically gotten to play with a bunch of fake money for the past four years, right? My credit cards, business line of credit, personal line of credit, none of that is actual money. And while I'm using that money to buy building materials to build the house, I am accruing interest, but ultimately it's an investment. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, over the past four years, I've probably spent maybe $10,000 in interest on those various lines of credit, right? But what that's gaining me now is I'm now, even with the house incomplete, I am now sitting on top of a, call it a minimum three quarter of a million dollar asset. Wow. Because it's and gone so, up so much. Yep. Because of, yep, the value surge with the post-pandemic housing market. Yeah. Um, and it would have gone up some regardless, you know, property generally trends upward. And if you sit on it long enough, you'll eventually come out ahead. Mm-hmm. In this case, it has skyrocketed and this has happened all over rural America. Property values are insane Mm because people are wanting a way out of the city. Mm -hmm. And in my case, I also happen to have a billionaire neighbor who wants to buy my property. So in my case, I could probably sell this for a million five. And so what's so shocking about this is that by managing to gain stewardship of a piece of land, right? By getting the land, whether or not we, I don't even really believe we can own a part of the earth, which has been around for billions of years. And I Mm -hmm. only exist for a hundred years. You know, it makes no sense. But in the legal system, there's a piece of paper in the county office that says that I own this land. So by investing $17,000, I have effectively turned $17,000 into something like $1.5 million in value. Which you, I know you're, you don't want to sell. You right. are in I'm love certainly with this not planning land. To sell. And the, your relationship to this land is really beautiful. And I want to get into that later too. Yeah, like there's be, so much to unpack It'd be like here. selling my soul. And furthermore, yeah. if I sold this land for that much, I would not be able to still live in this place that feels like home. The, the market's so insane that by the time I paid capital gains, yeah. I wouldn't be able to buy back in. Uh-huh. You know, I mean, they'd have to pay me like $5 million so that I could buy back into this market, which is stupid for them to do on a two acre parcel when they already own 7,000 acres all around me, yeah. you know? So no, I don't think there's yeah. any chance that I'm selling unless they come at me with some ridiculous offer that allows me to go start a planet saving foundation of my own. Yeah. Um, but the point is that just by navigating the system and shuffling artificial money around, I suddenly am in a place of privilege, right? And this is what property ownership in America has always been. If you own Mm -hmm. property, you have something that the bank values and therefore they will give you money. Mm -hmm. And so by the time this house is done, I assume it's going to assess well over $500,000 according Mm -hmm. to the county. Yeah. You know, and that's less than the market value assessment. Um, So at that point, I'll be able to refinance it, Mm -hmm. consolidate my high interest rate debt, pay all of that off. And I'll be sitting on top of, you know, a property 
I'll have a monthly mortgage payment in my case, because all my costs total so far are under $200,000. Yeah. So my monthly payment is going to be like $500 or something, right? Wow. Very easily manageable monthly payment. And then I'm going to have probably like $100,000 extra that I get on that refinance to either go buy and invest in more land, to invest in some other thing that's going to return more interest rate than I'm paying on the loan because interest mm -hmm. rates are at a historic low, mm -hmm. right? I'm going to be paying 2% interest, 2.5 or something like that. Mm -hmm. but I'll be able to take, call it $50,000 and put mm -hmm. in an investment that's giving me 5% interest return. And so it really is this path to personal financial freedom. Yeah but it's generally only available if you already have wealth. Yeah. The, the key difference in my case is that I have put in thousands and thousands of backbreaking hours of labor to build this house because I've built it entirely myself from the ground up, dug the foundation with a shovel, have installed every single screw and nail, have lifted every 700 pound beam into place by myself. And so I've done this in an extremely inexpensive way. Yeah. But similarly, someone who's less inclined to do the building process, which I would steer most people away from because it's pretty hard. Yeah. Um, there's so many cool little modular homes now, homes that come on the back of a, a semi truck that you can mm -hmm. set up in a week or two. Yeah. And a lot you of know, them so are really using ecological materials. Totally. Well. They're great. Yeah. Yeah. There's amazing options now, all these yeah. little cabins in a box kind of thing. Yeah. And so you could buy a piece of land, say you find something a hundred thousand dollars, spend like a hundred thousand dollars on your tiny home cabin in a box, your yurt, whatever. Mm -hmm. And what you're yeah. sitting on, you spend $200,000 and you're sitting on a $400,000 value. Amazing. I, right? I have to say something out loud though. I yeah. personally am not an advocate for tiny homes. I don't feel that they're a community building. I just don't see myself living in a tiny home. I have lived in homes that are really tiny before I've rented them and I was yeah. pretty miserable. And as a musician, you know, yeah. you know, an artist and you as a, you know, right. I need space to do my arts, work. you need a lot yep. of roof yep. space, ceiling height. Ceiling height. Space. Yeah. Yeah. So I love the movement towards tiny homes in yeah, towards less consumption in basically. essence, right? Because a lot of, Amer and especially being uh, North American, like we are in such a high consumption, high footprint yep. um, society as North Americans. Like, I think this conversation is really important, but yeah. I think that you talking about different options is really important too. And well, and the other thing too, for someone like you or I, if I had bought some of the other properties I, I looked at, and, and let me just back up for a second. So this property is a very challenging property to develop. It's gorgeous. There's a beautiful creek flowing right through the middle of the property. There are huge trees. There's aspen groves. I've got three Douglas firs that are over 100 feet tall. I've got a, a beautiful sagebrush hillside on the other side of the creek, these mm -hmm. huge rock outcroppings. That's all the stuff that I value the most is I'm in a little mini miniature national park. Mm -hmm. um, it's challenging to develop because there's not a lot of space between the road and the creek mm -hmm. where I'm allowed to build. And I personally am not willing to just mow down the trees to build a large building. So I'm mm -hmm. going to build multiple smaller buildings that give me everything I need, but not mm -hmm. in one building. There was a great property I looked at with stunning views of the mountains that was more open farmland. A piece of land like that, and that at the time was around $35,000. You throw up a pole barn. You know, pole barn, you build an apartment in it. So you have your space to do whatever, whether you're a glass blower or a metal worker, or a musician, mm -hmm. you know, a juggler like me, you've got mm -hmm. a giant space, mm -hmm. which is not 
efficient to heat, but which you don't need to heat all of, mm -hmm. right? You've got big space to do big things in, and then you build your smaller apartment inside, which is enormously energy efficient mm -hmm. because it's a building inside of a building. It's protected from the elements and you're only heating, you know, the space that is kind of your dwelling space yeah. at full dwelling temperature. There's so there's ways to do it. And again, it speaks to every situation is a co-creative process with the land that you're working with. Yeah. And there's you so know? much to unpack here. So I want to pause for a moment yep, because sure. I have taken notes of like six different things that we can right. go into. Oh yeah. 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 I love that you're talking about the space. I love that you're talking about the land and, um, just the setting a little bit. Can you go into the setting a little bit more and your neighbors, your four-legged neighbors, your winged neighbors yeah. and the mountains, like tell a little bit more about the setting. And then I wanted to get into another piece that you mentioned. Yeah, for sure. You know, I, I, I put a post up on Instagram the other day because one of my favorite neighbors is an American Martin, which commonly is often called a pine Martin, but technically in America, we have American Martins. Pine Martins only exist in um, Europe. But Martins are just the cutest little members of the weasel family. They're about the size of a house cat. You know, they're super fluffy. They've got these cute little round ears because they live in a winter environment where they don't want their ears to freeze off. Cute little faces. And they are amazing arboreal athletes. They're built for climbing trees where they hunt squirrels. And they're like little parkour badass athletes that vault through the forest from branch to branch and bound through the snow. And they're just bright-eyed, keenly intelligent, and so fun to watch. No wonder you're drawn to them. That's so oh, you. Totally. They're That's like really your personality. Totally. It's my spirit animal for sure. Um, yeah, we, we, I was going to say spirit animal. And then I was like, you know, we right. can't say that anymore. No, but it's kind of a, a yeah, dear white people. We can't Instagram, say that anymore. Instagram yeah. parlance, yeah. you know? Yeah. yeah. But yeah, no, it's an animal that I share a, a strong affinity for their yeah. They're just their way, their character and personality. Um, they're incredible. And they're one of the many wildlife neighbors I have. I mean, in mm -hmm. this area, uh, mountain lion, bobcat, coyote, wolf, elk, deer, both mule deer and white-tailed deer, uh, moose. You know, one day I heard this, brr, 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 and I was like, what is that? It was a moose huh. walking along the exterior side of my building and its antlers were dragging <gasps> on the side of the building because just walking past my building down to the creek and then birds i mean golden eagles bald eagles uh, i had a, a great heron in my creek earlier this summer which is amazing to see they're huge birds when you see them up close yeah. sandhill cranes flying overhead probably a couple hundred species of songbirds wow. at different times throughout the year i would easily say a dozen to 20 different species of bees and equally as many butterfly species obviously countless beetles, probably at least 10 different species of ants, yeah. you know? And so for me, as someone who came here to help save the planet, that biodiversity is yeah. so central. And the, the sense of wildness of this property, you know, I'm not mowing down the underbrush to make it more open or the way I've designed the building is just mm -hmm. to drop it into the footprint of the trees around it. Mm -hmm. um, and that's what makes this space so special. What I was going to say about the Pine Martin is the other night in the middle of the night, I heard the Pine Martin walking through the snow. Incredible. So that's how tranquil it is here. You know, I'm, Peace. I'm only 11 miles from the nearest little town uh, where the grocery store is and so forth, but I'm at the dead end of a dirt road mm -hmm. and I've got just a couple neighbors and mm -hmm. I can go half a day without seeing a car or hearing any man-made sounds. Wow. And in the middle of the night, I can hear like a four to eight pound critter with super soft, fluffy paws walking through the snow. 
Wow. You know, it's amazing. And people, you know, my friends in Colorado have, you know, asked me like, how are you doing up there? Do you feel isolated? And I am isolated in a certain way. It's, it's such a small town that it's hard to meet people. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of activities going on with the pandemic. Obviously it was impossible. There's no more getting together with new friends and neighbors, but the connection to the natural world yeah. for me is so fulfilling. And we know this, I mean, there's tons of science mm-hmm. that shows that time in nature is the ultimate antidote to all of our time with digital mm-hmm. um, technologies mm-hmm. that are overstimulating our brains and mm-hmm. basically traumatizing us with stress of overstimulation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there might be a moment of loneliness here or there, but overwhelmingly, it's just the deep calm and inner peace and tranquility and fulfillment of feeling constantly connected to the world around me. Yeah. I just want to speak to that a little bit because, you know, essentially this podcast is about how we are all contributing to moving the dominant social paradigm forward. And this is something I really want to speak to, you know, in terms of decolonizing. Yeah. Hopefully making the dominant paradigm take a hard right turn, or maybe I should say a hard left turn if you're using political ideology, I don't know, but making a hard turn (laughs) in some direction other than it's going, we're not. Or an an expansion, you know, an abundance. Yeah. Shifting our values really. So what I want to speak to here is you're kind of touching on it is that in Western European influence society. So if we're talking about that influence on North America alone, but it's so much of the world, we humans, we two-leggeds have our, we value the interactions between other humans and other two-leggeds. And we don't tend to focus on our relationships to the uprights, to the trees, to the, to the winged, yeah, to the, the four-legged, the winged, yeah. the crawlers, the four-legged. And I just want to honor that this perspective, I didn't even have consciously until several years ago when I started um, learning and being trained in the Lakota traditions. And I'm so incredibly sure. deeply grateful for that. And it's not just in the Lakota traditions. There's a lot sure. of indigenous um, cultures, including my own. You know, I come from a Celtic background, like right. the majority of my ancestry is Celtic. Right. And so as I've gotten in touch with that more deeply, and I know that you can resonate with this too, you know, when we all get in touch with where we are indigenous to, yeah, we get to really tap into those relationships that we have beyond human to human yeah. contact. So I love that you're speaking to that. That's yeah, really no, and, and rare for me, it's really, um, it's just so easy when it's right there in front of you, when you value life, you know, and I've always valued life on earth. And so for me, like, as I'm building the property, like right now, there's a little um, shrub that's right next to the ladder that I climbed to get up into my little, uh, what I call the grouse house, which is a little Mm -hmm. tiny, the first tiny structure I built on the property, four by eight feet. It's just big enough for me to have a bed Mm -hmm. where I'm not going to get chomped in half by a bear in the middle of the night because it's a a rigid structure instead of a tent, right? Mm -hmm. And I could easily just cut that thing down, you know, and it wouldn't wouldn't be in my way anymore. Right. And every time I walk past it, it's like I kind of have to lean up against it to squeeze between the trunk of this little shrub and the ladder vertically yeah. on my other side. Mm-hmm. And I don't have to cut it down. 
Right. I can brush up against that plant and feel it as a friend. Yeah. You know, like it's not, there's no problem there for me to bump into this plant and it kind of sways out of the way a little bit. And Mm -hmm. I maybe lean in Mm -hmm. a little bit and we're all good. And like the pathways that I've made on the property to get down to the Creek or over to the fire pit or, you know, over to where I park my car, et cetera. I let those be grown in a little bit, you know, because I get to actually be in direct physical contact with nature as I'm walking that path and the little undergrowth is brushing against my legs, it is a tactile and immediate and direct connection to the natural world, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And, and so that has just infused every aspect of my choices here. The reason I hand dug, spent two weeks with a shovel and a pick and little trowels and little scoops to dig my foundation piers. The reason I did that is because by digging individual piers instead of a continuous running wall foundation, it meant that I would do the least harm to the roots of all the trees yeah. that I was dropping this house in amongst. So mm-hmm. those trees can continue getting oxygen and water and thriving, mm-hmm. even as I thrive right in amongst them. Right. That's beautiful. But that was two weeks. That was work that could have been done in half a day with a piece of heavy machinery, yeah. but that heavy machinery would have caused so much harm. It would have ripped my heart out. Mm-hmm. watching that machinery trample all of the plants and just rip stuff apart, you know, it's, uh, and so instead by taking the time and building that relationship. And I remember you actually commented on this. I think Deborah, when you visited here a couple of years mm-hmm. ago, before mm-hmm. I'd started the main construction that you commented on how it felt like you could feel that the land trusted me. Yeah. You know, I because I, I have, that. I haven't been violating the land, right? You know, like every choice I've made has been to prioritize the life force of this place and the all those who were here before me, the plants, the trees, the rocks, the animals, they all came before me. Right. You know, I'm moving into their neighborhood. Right. And so I want to do that in the most respectful way possible, you know, as a protector and steward of this place, instead of an exploiter of this place who's just trying to achieve my goals. I just want to pause there for a moment because I'm sure. actually getting teary-eyed because it's just so um it's so moving to have a relationship with all of the aspects of the land, even calling it the land is right. Is generalizing because there's so many nations on that land. Oh yeah. The lichens, the the mosses, the, you know, the fungi, my God, I've seen so many species of mushroom that I've never seen anywhere else in the world here. And like, right when I started construction, there was this turquoise blue green mushroom that popped up right on the edge of where I was going to start digging the first foundation hole came out of nowhere, felt like an alien just popping up to say, hi, I've never seen a mushroom that color. And it lasted for probably, I don't know, three or four weeks, you know, and then I've got these boletus mushrooms that'll pop up and be gone within a couple of days. And they're the size of footballs. And there was like a, um, I think it's a coral mushroom with this mm-hmm. outlandish mushroom that I've only seen once on the property that was, you know, also like the size of a football, but looked like the stalactites inside a crystal cave. Mm. I mean, just stunning life form, you know, and those are just the mushrooms and there's easily 20 other species of mushrooms I've seen on this property. So yeah, not only just species, but different kingdoms of life. Right that are all in this tiny little two acre parcel. It's, it's mind blowing. I love you that know? you said kingdom. I haven't heard that word in so long, you know, since biology class, right. but it's true. They're, they are kingdoms. This is right. royalty and like right. to treat it as such. And, 
you know, the fact that you were able to recognize that there are about 20 different species of bees on your property, like who does that? Like you still have people that are calling wasps that sting you over and over again, a bee. And I'm like, no, those don't make honey. They're just assholes that want meat and protein and they bite you at your picnic. Those are not bees. So the fact that you have the relationship with, with the environment there to notice that there are 20 species of bees is so well, profound and, and it's as it should be. We and such a source of that. joy. Yeah. You know, it is such a source of joy. I discovered several new ones this year that I hadn't seen before. One was something that looks kind of like what we call a yellow jacket, but mm. maybe tw- two to three times as big mm. with a paler yellow. I mean, gorgeous and very docile. Mm. You know, they're in my building. I'm like, oh my God, that thing looks terrifying, but like super calm energy and mm. easy to move back outside, you know? Mm-hmm. And a couple of really interesting different forms of wasps with the long slender body type. Mm. But most fun this year was discovering these little black bees that were taking naps and sleeping overnight in uh, this flower called a harebell. There's a, a flower that's a little humble bell-shaped flower, little purple flower, mm. smaller than the end of your pinky. And there are these little black bees that I kept finding like yeah. curled up in the flower sleeping after they had How gotten beautiful. some nectar or something. And I had seen somewhere on, on the internet photos of bees sleeping in flowers. I was like, no way. Like that is totally Photoshopped. I don't believe it. Okay. And then turns out, nope, it actually happens. I saw it like 20 times this summer. That's and, you know, and then I started checking every time I was going by harebell. I'd look under it to see if there was a bee in there. And a lot of the time there was, you know? And so like how much joy and delight that brings Mm -hmm. to my life to see like this cute little black bee curled up in this flower, you know? I mean, it's, Uh, you can't buy that. Yeah. And that's exactly the point. Capitalism wants us to buy every experience. And the reality is the experiences that bring us the greatest contentment, satisfaction, inner joy, fulfillment don't need to be purchased. Mm-hmm. sit down with some drums with your friends and have a drum circle around the fire. Mm-hmm. You can do that for no money. You don't even need drums. Just tap out a rhythm on your legs, mm-hmm. you know, good conversations mm-hmm. with people playing a flute on your own, whatever me, my juggling practice, like none of that requires a massive consumer mm-hmm. purchase, mm-hmm. you know, and certainly just being in nature. I mean, right now, as I look up from the computer screen of the zoom call, you know, just watching the snowflakes fall. Oh, it's snowing there right now in Idaho. Yeah, we're finally getting some snow this week. So, so yeah, I mean, it's gorgeous. And just slowly seeing the branches accumulate snow and whatnot. I mean, no one needs to sell me anything for me to enjoy that and to take so much fulfillment from it, you know? Yeah. And to want to ensure that that continues. I just think if we can all take a moment right now and look out the window wherever we are. Right. You know, like here I am in San Diego and it's raining. There's a light sprinkling today. It's beautiful. Every time it rains here in the desert, I get so excited. Like there's a lot of Instagrams and Facebook lives of me just hooping and hollering (laughs) because it's raining or thunder and lightning, you know, and the palm trees are waving and there's actually a, yeah, there's actually a palm tree in my garden that I call the applause tree or the hand clapping Uh tree. Cause it, it literally sounds like hand clapping the way Uh that the palm fronds Right. vibrate together. It's really cool. Yeah. You know, when I think of my, um, my college best friend, a guy named Rob who now lives in Hong Kong where he's mm-hmm. a teacher at an international school and he's met his wife and has two kids. Mm-hmm. Hong Kong is one of the most densely populated islands in the world. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, just skyscraper after skyscraper, 
he is constantly posting photos of amazing insects. Mm. You know, they recently found a caterpillar on their windowsill or something and got to watch it go into a cocoon and metamorphose into a butterfly. Wow. You know, and so even in some of the least natural settings in the world, nature is always there as a companion and a source of joy and healing in our lives. And I I think to extend the idea of decolonizing our thinking and decolonizing ourselves in relationship to nature, we some we often forget that we are part of nature, that we are one of many kingdoms and many Mm -hmm. species in nature. And yeah, it's not us and them. Yeah. It's us. All of us. All yeah, of the nations. Exactly. And, and we are absolutely a part of it. I'd we're not the main story. I apologize for interrupting you, but we're not the main story. We're part of many stories, right? Right. Totally. Yeah. Um, I think something that really ties into this concept of decolonization, as I was saying before we started recording, I was just yeah. writing a letter to the county commissioners in Douglas County, Colorado, yeah. because a company which in a horrible greenwashing bid is calling themselves renewable water resources. They have applied for a $20 million grant in COVID relief money to build a bunch of deep wells in a valley on the other side of the mountains from Douglas County and to pump water out of the aquifers that sustain all of nature and the agriculture and all the people who live in that valley and to pump that water over to the bigger cities on the other side of the mountains. And so I'm writing a letter talking about you know, I mean, this is a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. You can't, you can't rob a finite resource from one area and use it in another area and expect that that's just free lunch. Mm-mm. You know, there's always a price. And in this case, the taxpayers are paying the price by footing the bill of $20 million for the infrastructure that this company wants. And then the taxpayers will pay the price to buy the water. Mm-mm. And the taxpayers will pay the price to deal with the fact that the San Luis Valley is going to become a wasteland and mm-hmm. people are going to have to leave there. And the beautiful hot springs, one of my favorite hot springs in the world, which is one of several there is going to get dried up and mm-hmm. great sand dunes national monument is no longer going to have a seasonal periodic Creek that flows through it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we're going to pay to deal with all of that. And meanwhile, this private company is going to get profit from the $20 million grant and then profit from selling the water and then not have to bear the cost of the destruction they cause. And like, that's a perfect example of colonization. Yeah. You know, that is, we're going to use our superior wealth and force to try and do something that's a terrible idea. And so tying it back into this house, which gave itself the name Dancing Light, one of my primary objectives in this house has been from the very get-go, I'm sitting on a creek and I want to use the least amount of water possible. Water is a finite resource. Mm-hmm. For centuries, we've treated water as an infinite resource. Mm-hmm. And we're rapidly running out of clean, drinkable water that we can use to survive and mm-hmm. grow food with. Mm-hmm. And so for me, it's of the utmost importance to protect water and to use the water that I need to survive as efficiently as possible. And so I expect that by the time this house is completed, I'll be using something like maybe two gallons of water a day, you know, maybe on a peak day. Yeah. Yeah. On a peak day, maybe three gallons, maybe four, you know, if I have house guests or something, but you know, the national building code or the international building code and many of the local municipalities, they basically base their designs and plans around the idea of houses consume 150 gallons of water per person per day. 
per day. Right. And I'm That's talking insane. about, I was going to guess 50 gallons. Right. Right. And, and, you know, a lot of people aren't using that much, of course, you know, I mean, that's running laundry and taking a bath or taking a long shower, dishwasher, whatever, Mm -hmm. watering lawns, et cetera. But it's just, you know, to me, this whole idea of we've got a growing population in the big city on one side of the mountains. So we're just going to take water from the other side of the mountains where there's not as many people to support the people in the big city. Mm -hmm. It's insanity. You Mm -hmm. know, the, the only thing that we can do to address that situation is to stop wasting water. Mm-hmm. Every time you flush a toilet, five to 10 gallons of water going down the toilet. If you're in California, mm-hmm. maybe it's a couple gallons of water. Maybe it's 1.5 for a really efficient toilet. It could be zero. You don't need to take clean drinking water, put a pile of poop in it, flush it down a drain, send it to a water treatment plant where you then try to separate the poop from the water. Mm-hmm. Just don't mix the two in the first place. It's a terrible yeah. idea. Yeah. And so there, there are so many really easy ways. And that'll be the next thing for me writing this letter is to just do some research on the number of people in that county and how much water they could save just by implementing the simplest of water conservation techniques, aerators mm-hmm. on faucets, you know, uh, rebates for low flush toilets, et cetera, stuff that California mm-hmm. with its water issues has been doing for years. Mm-hmm. I think if they implemented those, take your $20 million, give it to everyone in your community to implement basic water conservation right? and come out way ahead, stop wasting water, mm-hmm. you know, instead of just giving all the money to a rich corporation who's going to make even more wealth off of taking advantage of the situation. Right. And creating well, problems and creating you know, more problems than yeah, it solves. I mean, they exactly. could also look into reservoirs. I mean, it snows there for goodness sakes. Yep. You know, yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a lot of possibilities, you know, other than draining the precious groundwater out of one Valley and shipping it over the mountains. Yeah. Know. And we've yeah. had that issue here in California, you know, yep. where I grew up in Sonoma County, which is, the other wine region right next to Napa yep. County. Um, and I know you grew up there too. Yep. Uh, we are more intimately aware of the disparity between agricultural use wells, which are 200 feet into the ground and home use wells, which are 50 feet into the ground. Yeah. So you yeah, can imagine how quickly that the agricultural use can drain the aquifers for the home use. And obviously agriculture is really critical. We need it is important. It's hundred percent important. I'm glad you said that because I was, I was just going to say, Hey, we need to figure out solutions. So both can coexist. Right. Absolutely. And, And the whole thing to me, I mean, it's the classic Gandhi quote, the earth has enough for man's needs, not for man's greeds. Yeah. You know, if we use resources well, there are plenty of resources for everyone to have an incredibly high quality of life. If we waste resources, there's not enough for anyone, you know, and so we just have to start using finite resources much more prudently, you know, stop wasting, you know, and there's just such simple things that can be done. So yeah, so that was just one example for me of a core value that is very tied into the idea of decolonization, you know, of it's, I'm not here to exploit these resources that are right at my doorstep. I'm here to steward these resources and to coexist with them. Coexisting means consuming some of them. Mm-hmm. I need to eat food. I need to drink water. I need a certain amount of water for bathing, for washing my dishes, mm-hmm. for cleaning my house. But I don't need to be wasting that precious water. Mm-hmm. You know, I need energy. But guess what? I can put up solar panels and I can insulate the hell out of this house yeah. so that in the long run, I may spend a little more money and energy value in more insulation, Mm -hmm. 
Right. But it means my house is not going to take any energy to heat, even in a very severe winter. That's amazing. It's going to be very well insulated, you know? And so even with the embodied costs of the building materials, it comes out well ahead in terms of the overall energy consumption and yeah. building a house that's designed to last much longer than the standard subdivision garbage construction that gets thrown up and isn't going to last more than 40 years. This place should last a hundred years or more. You know, in the next place I, in the process of building this, I've learned of some even simpler techniques that are even lower impact in construction that can last for 500 years and have already been proven to do so in Europe. Yeah. And that's the slip straw construction with a, a clay plaster or a lime plaster um, surface coat. So if people wanted to research that, what would they look up? Slip straw, um, really the natural building movement, but timber frame, slip straw, lime plaster mm-hmm. is the combination. Um, oh. And those are walls that can be built basically anywhere in the country in terms of being viable in any environment. Um, little tougher. You have to wait longer for the, it to dry in a like Pacific Northwest, super humid environment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it can be built with the most basic, you're building it out of dirt and hay, mm-hmm. you know, or more appropriately straw, you know, mm-hmm. the remnant from the hay, which is, you know, you can get that anywhere. You're not shipping it across the country. You go to your local farmer and say, Hey, next year I need this many acres of your hay. Yeah. You know, and it costs nothing. It's super cheap. Yeah. And it's a wall that breathes. There are no synthetic materials. It's super insulative um, and it's infinitely repairable. If it ever develops a crack, you just slap on a little more plaster and seal it right back up. If there's ever a leak in the roof, the water goes into the wall where it's absorbed by the clay on the straw and where it will later be released in hotter weather, it gets just evaporated back out. Wow. You know, so, I mean, it's an amazing system that is so simple. Mm. And like I say, there are homes in Europe that have been built that way and standing for 500 years. Can you, yeah, that's amazing. And can you talk more about um, the different ways that you have designed your home to be low impact and low energetic use? So you talked about passive solar and you've described that to me in detail, but I, w- I would love for people yeah. to hear about that. Yeah. So in my case, the, and again, it's all about working with the landscape that you're in. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in my case, step one was don't destroy the forest by building it, you mm-hmm. know, so design the house around the trees and then doing a pure foundation using less uh, concrete and less embodied carbon in concrete, which is pretty carbon intensive, uh, digging that by hand, not ripping up all the roots of all the trees. And then making sure that south facing, I have a, an, a almost all windows on that wall. So I'm going to capture as much sunlight as I possibly can. Um, and then the wall structure, this was a system that I stumbled into prior to learning about the slip straw system. Mm-hmm. So it was the best knowledge that I had when I started drawing the plans for this building. And basically it's a double stud wall construction. So in this case, I've got two sets of stud framing, two by fours, and there's a space in between them. So I end up with a very thick wall. And most importantly, what I end up with is a thermal break. So if you have a a traditional construction where the stud is touching the exterior siding towards the outside of the house, and touching the drywall towards the inside of the house, you've now got a thermal bridge where heat can be conducted through that stud, either into the house or out of the house. So cold being drawn in, heat mm. being drawn out. Mm. And that costs a lot of energy, that conduction of heat through mm-hmm. the structure. But by putting the gap in between the vertical studs, 
you don't have that conduction. There's a break. Mm. And so the heat can't just migrate out of your house mm. through the structure of the skeleton of the house. What are you putting in that gap? Is it just air or is there something in that gap? Yeah. In my case, it'll all be filled with insulation. Okay. Yeah. And so I'm using two different insulations. One is rock wool, which is a um, kind of similar to fiberglass, but made with recycled and reclaimed um, basalt and industrial steel manufacturing slag Mm -hmm. and they heat that up into a molten state and then blow it through a tiny little extruder to make a fiber kind of like a fiberglass and then put it all together into a a mat Um, and it's got a lot of great properties that you know mold and things can't grow on it and it's uh, vapor permeable and it's very fire resistant Mm -hmm. Um, so I'm using that and then also using blown in cellulose which is one of the best cheap super eco-friendly products basically recycled shredded newspaper that gets treated with some borate to make it fire resistant Mm -hmm. so important yeah 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 especially where i live and especially given that i'm not clear cutting the forest around my house Mm -hmm. i need to try to make my house as fire hardened as possible so that sometime in my lifetime when there's a wildfire coming through hopefully the house survives Mm -hmm. you know and similarly I built the house up off the ground because I live right next to the creek, which someday is going to flood, Yeah, you know? And so I want those floodwaters to just run underneath the house mm-hmm. without destroying the house. And mm-hmm. that for me is how I build in this environment to be in harmony with my landscape instead of, you know, mm-hmm. fighting or trying to dominate the landscape or conquer mm-hmm. the landscape mm-hmm. and just be smart. There's a creek. It's going to flood. Right. Might as well plan for it from the start instead of crying in my milk when it happens. Going, oh, the damn creek flooded. Duh. <laughs> Yeah. You know, what'd you expect us to have? Yeah. But yeah. And then I will also have active solar um, in terms of about a dozen solar panels, 300 watt panels that will offset my electricity use Mm -hmm. uh, because I am doing electrical heat, which is not hugely efficient. You know, you can get more bang for your buck out of natural gas or, you know, burning a fuel, but that obviously has a high carbon impact and a high impact of extraction. Whereas solar and electrical heat means that I've got clean heat, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, both passive and active solar for this place. That's Try and really beautiful. minimize my footprint. Yeah, totally. It's exciting. So there's another piece I wanted to talk about, and it came up for me in the beginning of the conversation when you were talking uh-huh. about the loans, getting the loans and everything. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as an artist, that can often be such a, um, oh, a hurdle. And I yeah. also wanted to speak to something else because this is, you are a culture keeper and uh, it's a huge part of my mission statement to really include in the conversation and also in the guests that I have, you know, the BIPOC community in particular and LGBTQ plus community that, you know, loans are really a challenge in those communities. And, um, you know, I just want to speak to the elephant in the room, you know, uh, that you are of European descent, right. American and and very white in appearance, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously Caucasian. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And that's certainly, it gives me an advantage. Yeah. And also being male. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. In any business banking type setting, Mm -hmm. I'm that much more likely to be looked upon as a favorable risk Mm -hmm. because of our intrinsic biases in our society. Mm -hmm. So yeah, for all that I basically came into this with very little resources and have really finagled a way through a system that's not remotely built for someone like me. 
Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of being an artist and yeah, being an income. artist, being yeah. just being self-employed. I mean, yeah. I had to go and track down copies of every check that people had written to me, you know, for my income for the year. Cause I'm an independent contractor. I go work for, you know, the Humane Society of Denver one weekend and the next weekend I'm performing up at Beaver Creek. So yeah. I've got a check from Beaver Creek, a check from Humane Society, whatever. The original loaning bank, when they look at my bank statement, all they see is, oh, $500 came in, $200 came in. And they're like, well, we don't know if that's actual income or if that's, you know, your family giving you money. Right. Or is that a a private loan, Mm -hmm. you know? And so in order to assess my actual financial reality, I had to supply them Mm -hmm. with copies of every single paycheck I had received from Mm -hmm. every single client of mine Mm -hmm. to prove like, no, this is Beaver Creek giving me this money. This is the Humane Society of Denver giving me this money. It's not a family loan. It's not, Mm -hmm. you know, anything else. It's actual income. And so, yeah, the system does not like self-employed people at all. You know, they prefer W-2 forms and a very easily documented trail of income. So what advice would you give people in your situation then? I'm I'm assuming you would say, you know, keep a file of all of your copies of your checks or something like that. Yep, absolutely. And, you know, most banks are doing that for you at this point, but I think also just tracking, like it made it easier for me to track all that down because I have a spreadsheet Mm -hmm. in order for me to do my taxes at the end of the year. I have tracked every single gig that Mm -hmm. I do and what the event was, what they paid me, what the check number was. Mm -hmm. Did I get paid? Am I still waiting on the check so I can follow up with them, whatever. Mm -hmm. So I keep that all for my own records and that made it much easier than for me to go track down the Mm -hmm. actual checks in the online banking Mm -hmm. uh, site and to pull up those copies of canceled checks so then I could submit those as a big document. Mm-hmm. So yeah, keeping those records, being a business, if you're self-employed, this is something I've always resisted. I, I don't like the fact that basically businesses are generally used as a shield from liability, mm-hmm. right? A limited liability structure, a limited liability corp whatever there's are part of why our economy is so horrendous and why companies are able to get away with murder on a Mm -hmm. daily basis is because the individuals making the decisions are not held accountable for the decisions they're making Mm -hmm. because it's the business that's doing the murder, the business that's destroying the water or poisoning the land or whatever, or, you know, spilling uh, the oil spill at Huntington Beach and not actively cleaning it up, agricultural chemicals, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. there's no individuals being held accountable because they've got this shield in the form of the business. The corporation Mm -hmm. is liable, not the person who said, oh yeah, go for it. Let's produce this toxic chemical, you know, that's going to make crops respond to our fertilizers, whatever, you know, right. Or we have this wasteful product. Let's put it into toothpaste and call it fluoride. Right. Or let's take the radioactive sludge out of our fracking wells and sell it as dust mitigation so that people all throughout the Eastern United States are developing cancer because their street is swirling with radioactive dust which is then getting on their lawn, on their furniture, on their carpet, on their clothes, et cetera. So yeah, all those examples. So for me, I've never really wanted to be an LLC Mm -hmm. as a self-employed person. Like I believe I should be responsible for my actions. If I, as a circus artist, if I fall off my tight wire and land on a baby in a stroller, 
and that baby gets a broken leg. I mean, heaven forbid that happens somehow. I obviously do lots of things to ensure that would never happen, but I believe I should be held accountable for those actions. Yeah. And I should make decisions to make sure that never happens that's as opposed to making specifics then. Well, I mean, that's <laughs> what I have to think about in my yeah. business. I have to think about, am I, am I keeping my audience at a safe enough distance that this juggling torch, if I I've dropped juggling torches a handful of times in 32 years, mm -hmm. one time a torch went into a crowd because I had safety mechanisms in place. In that case, spotters, that torch was back in my, and we know this because this was videotaped. It was at a club in Denver. That torch was back in my hand within a couple seconds. It was like yeah. two seconds. Mm -hmm. you know, because there was someone there specifically watching to make sure if anything went wrong, boom, it was addressed. Yeah. You know, and that's what we had to do because that club was an inherently dangerous setting where the crowd was much too close to us. Yeah. So we had to compensate for that by having extra spotters to mm -hmm. make sure if a torch got loose, no one was actually going to get hurt by it. Yeah. So I have to think about that all the time because I don't care about going bankrupt because someone sues my ass off because I hurt them. I care about not hurting someone. Yeah, exactly. I don't want someone to lose an eye or to lose a limb or to suffer a lower quality of life because they showed up to be entertained and I maim them because right. I'm irresponsible or not thinking about their safety. Their safety has to come first. And if I've done that, I don't need a liability company to protect me because I've right. made sure that I'm not putting people in harm's way. Right. Because you so, have the moral code inside yeah. of you. You don't need the law to create that moral code. But unfortunately, right. most people need that. Yeah. And it's certainly the wiser course of action. And what I learned in applying for the loans, and this is tying it back into our actual conversation here, yeah. is that having a business structure, even something as simple as an LLC, LLC mm -hmm. makes you much more approachable for the bank, mm -hmm. you know, because in my case, basically I sat down with a banker and said, look, I'm going to buy land. I need as much loan money as I can get. Mm -hmm. What can you do for me? And he said, well, what do you do? I'm self-employed. Do you have an LLC? No, let's set you up an LLC. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So he basically did a little paperwork. And for that time with the state of Colorado, there was a registered LLC in my name, mm -hmm. although I've never really used that in any real mm -hmm. capacity, except mm -hmm. for the fact that it gave me access to a business line of credit, Great, which gave me financial leverage, which has allowed me to take $17,000 and convert it into over half a million dollar, $1.5 million in value. That is insane. And that right there makes this episode is so informative, but that nugget right there, that yeah. can change so many artists' lives. Right, exactly. And so the whole that. thing, the the key capacity to be able to do that is a tolerance for debt, right? Like I have had to sweat a little bit and go, okay, I'm racking up more money on my credit card now. Every month I'm paying $500 in interest on my credit cards and my lines of credit or whatever. But if I can just keep this moving forward and get the house done, get the certificate of occupancy and then get the loan, mm -hmm. suddenly I will have a very low interest rate loan. I will have a pile of money to use for other investments. Mm -hmm. And I will be sitting on an asset that gives me financial empowerment in the world because mm -hmm. I can go to a bank and say, hey, I need a loan to grow my business. And they go, what kind of you know collateral do you have? I've got a half million dollar property. Yeah. Great. Awesome. We'd love to give you a loan. Yeah. And I want to you interject know? something here too, Sven. And that is, um, you know, folks that do go that route. I'm not a financial advisor. I have right, my life and health insurance um, 
background. So I do have some financial backing from that, but, you know, make sure that folks that if you do this route, that your credit cards that you use are as low interest rate as possible. And there is, you can talk to financial advisors for free through your, through most banks. If you have a credit union, you can get free financial advice through them. And in your case, you got it through, um, through your bank, through like a loan officer, it sounds like, or a financial advisor, but there's also a game where you can play and you would have to get financial advice around that though, where you shuffle your credit card debt around to, to consolidate debt, um, to credit cards that have lower interest rates. Yep. Absolutely. Because that can really ding you. Yeah. And it's interesting. I mean, you basically have to really look at the whole picture. And a couple of the bankers, when I was going for the land loan, Mm -hmm. had talked to me about this. They said, look, you know, if you go this route, you're going to destroy your credit rating. If you max out your credit cards, max out all of your lines of credit, your credit rating is going to be in the tank. Yeah. um, And then it's going to be harder to get that loan at the end of it. Yeah. And so it is a very delicate balance. It's not for the faint of heart. Yeah. But the point is there's always a way. Yeah. And I found a way to navigate a system that is rigged against me. Yeah. You know, it's not set up for me. It's set up to keep me stuck and to keep me poor. And when as... you say me, it's the the general me, right? It's it's to keep us down. Well, yeah, me, yeah. me specifically, but anyone in my shoes. Yeah, that's an artist know? or that is Even... a person of color, LGBTQ yep. community. Yep. Or... Anyone who doesn't already have money. Yeah. If you've got money, the bank will give you money. If you don't have money, they're not going to give it to you. I know. And so if you don't have money, how do you navigate the system Mm -hmm. to position yourself so that you can actually achieve a state of financial empowerment and freedom, not be a victim of the system, not have to go work three jobs to barely make ends meet, you know, which a lot of people in this country do. There are people just breaking their backs. Yeah. And if they owned a home, they wouldn't have to work that hard because the bank says, oh yeah. We see that you pay $2,500 a month for rent for your two-bedroom apartment in which five people are living. But no, we don't think you can afford $1,000 a month for a mortgage. Yeah, it's BS. How do you think I'm pulling this off? Like I'm working three jobs. I can do it. Give me $1,000 a month mortgage and it'll be way easier. Yeah. I will never miss that payment. Right. You know, but the system doesn't want people to be financially empowered. Our system is based on exploitation. Yeah. It wants people to struggle. It wants people to be under the thumb of mm-hmm. those who have the wealth and the power. Yeah. I watched a great movie recently called In Time. And basically it was a movie where they use time as a metaphor for wealth. Science fiction, everyone is allotted a certain amount of time by some magical technology. When your time runs out and you've got this digital readout under your skin, when your time runs out, you just die. It shuts yeah. off your vital. It's an amazing movie. And- yeah. And so you work for that, those hours, every day you show up to work, you get more hours, keeps you alive. Um, but it is such a perfect allegory for what is really happening in the society. And one of the lines that stands out is there's a character who's in the wealthy class. He's got a million hours of yeah. lifespan available to him. So he can go buy anything he wants, yeah. get anything he wants. He gives his hours to uh, someone from the poverty class and he tells him, got to understand this system is working against you intentionally. Mm-hmm. Because in order for a few to be immortal, the masses must die. And it's basically talking about the myth of scarcity, right? It's saying yeah. that there's not enough resources on this planet. We are on a finite planet. There's too many people, whether this was you know, 300 years ago when there was only 4 billion people or now when there's 8 billion people, the myth is always saying there's too many people, not enough resources. Therefore, it's okay for me to take your resources by force. Right. Because there's not enough to go around. It's okay for me to colonize you. Yep, exactly. 
Exactly. And the reality is there actually are enough resources on this planet for all of us to have an incredibly high quality of life. There's not enough for a few people to have 90% of the resources and the remaining 99% of us to divide 10% of the resources. That doesn't work. That's a failed model that is coming to a dramatic conclusion sometime in our lifetimes, hopefully a peaceful conclusion. But the myth of scarcity is one of the central ideologies or, you know, to me, mythologies that has Mm -hmm. been used to propagate a system of colonization, of violence against everyone other than yourself. You are allowed to start a war over resources because there's not enough to go around. It's either you or them. We survive or they survive. Might as well be us. Someone's going to win. Someone's going to lose. We might as well be the winners. And then you get into the roots of racism, you know, and alienating and othering people in order to take their resources. Right. And that, of course, speaks to the other great myth of or one of the other great myths of the human experience, which is the myth of separation. Hmm. You know, if I can convince my followers in my nation that those Hmm. people who look different are fundamentally not human then I can justify killing them, enslaving them, doing whatever I want, taking their resources. If I, as the leader of an organized religion, can convince you that you do not have a connection to the divine, Mm. I can then hand you the manual of how to be connected to divinity in the world, and I can now control your behavior. I can tell you what is sinful and what is okay. Mm. I can tell you what issues matter. I can organize people to vote against their own best interests so that they vote for a candidate who is anti-abortion, anti-whatever. Abortion being a key issue right now in the Supreme Court Mm. and in many courts across the land, that was a strategic deployment of an idea from a think tank saying, if we can get people really riled up about a target issue, namely abortion, we can get them to vote against their own best interest. They will vote for politicians that basically completely exploit them as long as that politician is on the side of the abortion issue that they are on. Mm-hmm. You know, hence in, in our immediate recent lifetime, you know, so many conservative Christian groups backing Donald Trump, who's like, the most heathen of the heathens, the most sinful of the sinful. You know, he's raping underaged women and grabbing people by the pussy in the bar and whatever. Like that man doesn't know a Bible if it hit him upside the head. But because he said he would be anti-abortion, this entire subset of the population decided to back him, Hmm. even though he shares none of their values. So we can use those kind of issues to divide people, Hmm. right? If, If we keep them convinced that there is separation. If people understand that actually you and I are one, we and this planet are one, myself Mm -hmm. and that Pine Martin are one, myself and the creek are one, myself and this plant that's slightly in my way are one, we are one and the same. I can feel what's happening with those things. I can benefit Mm -hmm. from their life energy feeding me and nourishing me, and they can benefit from me stewarding the land in a good way. If we accept that, then it completely changes all these paradigms. Because mm-hmm. now I no longer act purely for my own self-interest as an individual in society. My best thing I can do is act for the good of everyone. Because mm-hmm. by me sticking up for a person of color, by me defending the rights of the environment, by me going to gay pride to support people who have a different sexual orientation than I do, that 
is me supporting other expressions of the same whole that we're all part of. Mm-hmm. And my world, and it's one of the things that it just stands out as so ludicrous to me. My world is so rich because there are people different than I am who share this existence with me. Mm-hmm. You know, Chinese food is delicious. Mexican food is delicious. Italian food is delicious. If I just lived in a society of Caucasian descent, English people, my whole palate, the food I get to eat is so diminished by only having food from one region, you know, but when I get to interact with other cultures, other ways of being, other uh, perspectives on life, my life becomes richer and so much more fun, you know? And so the only reason that we are being divided constantly is because the people doing the dividing benefit in terms of wealth accumulation by keeping us divided. All of us suffer by being divided. You know, the people who are out there protesting the Black Lives Matter movement saying, well, all lives matter or you guys are rioters or whatever, their lives suck. That's why they're so pissed off. And someone figured out, hey, if we get them pissed off at the Black Lives Matter movement, they won't come after us who are the ones who are really exploiting them. So let's get them riled up and get them fighting the Black Lives Matter people so they don't fight us, you know? And so that myth of separation is tantamount to colonization you know yeah there's so much to unpack in just that alone you know um yep we we do have to wrap up here thank you sven Uh, it's been such a pleasure i feel like i would love to go out on a few more positive notes than just having talked about all this antagonism and separation and getting these different movements to go to war with each other. Can you take one more moment to do that? Yeah. What I would love to share with people most is just the knowledge that harmony exists. And I'm the living embodiment of this because I'm getting to experience it so directly, like receive from the sound of my voice, what it is to step out the front door and to feel connected to every plant, to every tree, to every rock and the joy that that brings, you know, and how happy I am. I'm going into my third winter with no insulation in one of the harshest climates in North America. And I'm happy as a clam Uh because I'm connected to the world around me. I'm not divided. I'm in connection and I'm in union with the people I interact with on a daily basis and with the nature surrounding me. And so that connection is the antidote Mm -hmm. connection to self, connection to the divine connection to other, you know, that's the necklace I wear. That's what it's about for me. This, this three point necklace is a Trinity. It's the, Mm -hmm. you know, the kind of the triple polywog spiral in this case, it's the Japanese Mm -hmm. version of that. For me, it's a Trinity that represents connection to self connection to other connection to the divine. Mm -hmm. And it's that connection, which is our doorway to heaven on earth and the separation from self from other, from the divine, which is the path to hell, Mm. you know? And so when we're suffering, if we can look for connection, (laughs) if I'm miserable, lonely, et cetera, whatever, hateful, look for connection instead of reinforcing the idea of separation, the connection is so powerful. I had Uh to chuckle because you're like starting to talk about hell. And I was like, there he goes. He's going down that tangent again. Yeah. We always, we always see the two halves of the coin. I mean, that's why for me, the flip side of this necklace is the three points of separation. Mm-hmm. You know, it's reminding us of both. I can either be in connection to myself and to other and to the divine, or I can be feeling disconnected yeah. from other and from myself and from the divine. But the connection is where all the fun, the joy, the magic, you know, the harmony and where life becomes a magical adventure of letting things unfold in a way so much greater than you can imagine. And maybe that'll be our leaping off point for our next mm-hmm. talk is more of the actual process 
of building a home for yourself in a process-oriented way that allows something greater than your original imagination to manifest, which is what has happened here. Mm. Because I've engaged it in an organic process-oriented way, the results are so far beyond what I originally put down on paper. Because you connected with the land and you listen deeply. Yep. And I connected to the spirit of the building. I connected with the reclaimed materials that I found. I listened to the materials. I've listened to, it has been a co-creation instead of my agenda. And so getting to have that connected, co-creative, synergistic process, that's where the magic is. And that's what'll get someone a home that they cherish for their entire life. And that friends come over like, wow, this place is amazing. I've never seen anything like this. This It's so cool. It feels so great in here. Mm. You know, there's magic in this world in abundance if we open up and connect with it, connect with each other. You know, it's incredible. (laughs) It's so awesome. (laughs) That's beautiful. Adventure